This episode is sponsored by MJ's Progress Not Perfection Meeting Center Association. The name sounds familiar because it is where my podcast studio is held. We are in our meeting center where we do all these meetings for mental health and addiction. And since we can't get any of the local businesses to sponsor what we do here, I figure I'll sponsor the podcast. I can do this podcast anywhere. I can do this at home. I can do this in a closet somewhere. I can do this in a basement somewhere. It doesn't matter. All I need is somebody else to talk to about addiction and recovery, and I can do this podcast. What I can't do from anywhere is help people with their addiction and their mental health problems. You know, we've had a lot of amazing success stories that keep me so filled with gratitude that I do this. We're here all day long running meetings all day long because we want to help as many people as we can. And even when we help one, that's the biggest victory in the world. And that's how I feel right now. So if you can help out what we do here, then that would be amazing. You know, we do have a Venmo, we have a Cash App, we have a PayPal, we have an address you can send a check to. And, you know, all the money that gets donated goes towards rent, goes towards keeping the lights on. If you are a local business, if you're a national business, whatever, and you want to be a part of what we're doing, you know, you can reach out to me. And we can talk about how you can Welcome be a sponsor. show, Michelle. Thanks so much for having me. So what is your sobriety date? It is 8-8-2019. Okay, yes. cool. So you just celebrated two years a little bit ago. Yes. Is this your yeah. first crack at sobriety? No, it's not my first crack at sobriety. This is the longest I've ever had sober, though. Yeah. Oh, okay. So what was your main like drug of choice that you got sober from? Heroin, IV heroin, and Xanax. That's quite the mixture. Yeah. I always said that opiates and benzos were like our version of quaaludes because we didn't have quaaludes back then. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I always said that was the closest I could find to quaaludes was mixing the Percocets and the Xanax together. So now, when did you get started with, you know, you did, did you just get right into op- opiates or did you start drinking first or? No, I, I didn't get straight into opiates. Um, the first thing I started to do was smoke marijuana. Um, but I, I stopped doing that really quickly because uh, I had started doing that when I was 14 years old. Um, but my parents could smell that on my clothes and in my hair and like in my vehicle and all that stuff. So I quickly became very, very sneaky and started, uh, I had started drinking a little while after that, but I was like, they can smell the alcohol too. And so I started to do cocaine, like a lot of it. Yeah. Now, and this is down in Texas? Yeah, in San Antonio. Okay. Mm -hmm. So growing up now, when you're saying you started out with marijuana, that was a teenager, like we said, like your vehicle. So you had to have been. Well, um, I was 14 years old. Um, it was the summer before high school. Yeah. Okay. So and that's when you started right before smoking. high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And yeah, it's funny, the things that we do to avoid getting in trouble, like, you know, the most innocent thing in the world is like smoking a joint, you know yeah. what I mean? And yet like, oh my God, I could get in so much trouble for the smell of this. <laughs> <laughs> I should put something in my nose instead. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like the logic is just absolutely insane. Yeah, the first time that I smoked marijuana, I smoked it in my parents' bathroom. My dad came home banging on the door. He's like, Michelle, don't you think I know what that smell is? And I was just mortified. (laughs) 
Well, so if that was your first time, so you didn't know that that was going to smell like that? I didn't think ahead at all. I had never smoked a cigarette or anything in my life. Um, so I didn't realize that the smoke was going to just envelop like the entire house. <laughs> Looking back at it, it's so silly. But yeah, I was a kid. Yeah. What were you smoking? Like, was it a joint or a blunt? Yeah, or? it was a okay. joint. Yeah, it it's so funny. I remember like catching my sister smoking, you know, mm -hmm. and she doesn't smoke. Like she was like, I think she just graduated high school and her and her girlfriends were like celebrating graduating. And I yeah. was in the basement and I could smell it. It was in the middle of the night and I could smell like how like you're going to wake up our parents and I'm going to be the one getting blamed for this because I'm the older one. They know I'm a pothead. And, yeah. you know, at the time I was an addict. Um, <clears throat> my sister's like straight A's. You know, I'm like, how, how are you, what are you smoking? She's like, I'm smoking a, we're smoking a joint. I'm like, all right. And she was like, I don't know why it smells though, because we're blowing all the smoke out the window. I'm like, where's the joint when you're smoking it? She's like, what do you mean? I'm just holding it. I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm. where, what this smell, where do you think that's coming from? It's not the smoke that smells. It's the mm -hmm. paper that's burning. So you're holding your joint inside the, in the house. And blowing the smoke out the window, the smell is still staying in the house. You're right. Like, oh, like the smartest girl in the world, like <laughs> fucking three days. Yes. <laughs> Mine is exactly. blown when you know you. <laughs> it's so funny yeah. as someone that's not like into it. So, how do you find cocaine then instead? Was it like a friend? Yeah, man. Um, so I was a freshman in high school. One of my friends from elementary school went with me to high school and um, his family sold drugs. And so he he always had drugs on him, whether it was in school. Um, I spend a lot of time after school at his parents' house and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I got it directly from him. And um, then, you know, eventually it got to the point where I was going to the person that he got the drugs from so yeah. so what was it that you were trying to find in drugs like so you know you went okay i'm gonna smoke oh shit i can't mm -hmm. smoke okay i'm gonna drink oh wait they're gonna smell that too okay i'll do coke like i feel mm -hmm. like you were trying to find something yeah absolutely i i was very from the time that i can remember going back to my childhood i always felt very uneasy in my own skin um, I was very self-conscious. Um, I was really scared all the time. I didn't feel comfortable speaking out loud. Um, I'm also very empathic, so I'm very sensitive to other energies that are around me. And I constantly just felt overwhelmed and bombarded by other people's energies, uh, just all this stuff. So... I was running into the arms of drugs looking for a solution because I felt like I, my body was just way too overwhelmed by energy. And I, but I also wanted to get courage to, to speak and to be confident and to be this person that I wasn't. Um, I found that people did not accept me for who I was and a lot of times I was just bullied or pushed aside or when I spoke up, people didn't listen to me. But as soon as I started to do cocaine, I felt this sense of being invis invincible. 
like I could do or say anything and then people would listen to me. So you were able to actually speak up and be heard once you started doing coke? Yes. Did you get like, was it just like you had, you were all of a sudden you had courage? Is that what it was? like? Yes. All of a sudden I I had courage. Um, The most of the time I had this hesitation in me to speak up or to do things or um, just to have fun or, or just to be like, courageous and as soon as I would do a line it's just like it just came like that and so I wanted to do it all the time are you an only child no I'm the eldest of um well me and then those two brothers how much older are you one year from one of my brothers and the other one is seven years younger than me okay no yeah I'm the oldest of three and Mm -hmm. I felt like I was exploring myself like trying to find and like you know what I mean like where I had problems where I didn't feel heard yeah. and you know that was it's a, one of my triggers that I've talked about in my episode of like I never felt heard I always felt dismissed it, even in my friend group I always felt like that my opinions didn't matter you know mm-hmm. and so I always felt like I need to find a way to escape these feelings all the time of like you know getting mm-hmm. away um, and I feel like older, the oldest children, or we might as well be only children sometimes when you're the oldest. Um, mm-hmm. Did you feel different from your brothers besides being a, a different gender? Did you also feel like different from them growing up? Yeah, I mean, I, I felt like I was trying to navigate my life completely on my own. Um, at the same time, my brother, that's a year younger than I, like we were super close. But uh, I felt kind of like an alien. Just I thought differently. I spoke differently. The things I liked to do were different. And um, yeah, we were just in a completely different mindset. So I felt that even though we loved each other a lot, um, I felt like I was navigating this world all on my own. And and um, But once I started to do drugs, like... And I started to make like friends or whatever. And I had things in common with people for the first time in my life. And so just being able to have that connection with other people is what drove me to stay in that addiction. Yeah, well, it's really easy because especially when you're looking to be accepted and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden these people are doing these drugs with you. So they're going to accept you really easily. Um. What, so if you're like 15, 16, get into Coke, yeah. um, you know, were you doing it like every day at school too? Or is this like, just like whenever you could get your hands on it kind of thing? Cause like Coke isn't mm-hmm. cheap. Yeah. Um, most of the time, like I didn't have to pay for it and I didn't do anything like sexual for it or anything like that either. I was just simply, my best friend was the drug dealer. So I just got it from him because we'd been friends since we were like, what, eight years old or something like that, eight or nine. Um, So it started off where I did not do any drugs at the house. um, But as soon as I would get to school, like between every single period, I would go and do a line in the bathroom every single period. And then after school, until it was time to get, uh, my parents would pick me up, then I'd be getting high. So who knew you were getting high in school? Just your, just your friend that would sell it to you? 
Um, yeah, my friend that would sell it to me and then the other people that I was using drugs with. Um, that makes sense, yeah. Mm -hmm, yeah, now looking back, um, I've had a lot of people reach out to me from Facebook that are, you know, seeing my YouTube channel and um, seeing how long I've been sober and all this stuff. And they're like, wow, we had no idea that this was going on with you because, uh, I mean, I was a, an athlete. Um, I did two days. I'd work out in the morning, work out after school, do go to basketball games, volleyball games and all this stuff. I was a cheerleader. Like I kept myself busy. Um, and I don't know, people, I could put on a really good front. Yeah. So you, you did sports in high school then too, all year round. It sounds like, could you just name yes. like three different seasonal sports? Like, right. um, <laughs> so if you're doing sports all year round and that's probably, mm -hmm. you know, growing up that way too. I mean, I grew up in a family like that where we were doing sports all year round. You never had a family dinner because you were at somebody's practice or somebody's game. Did your brothers yeah. play sports too? Um, here and there yeah okay i wasn't sure not how busy not as much as i did yeah it got crazy in my house with my brother and i both playing and my sister i mean we were always you know at hockey or baseball or football or it was always something um yeah. so what made you go from coke and upper to you know dope yeah um you know one of the things <clears throat> i liked about cocaine is that it gave me courage but if I did just like a little bit too much of it, I would get this tremendous amount of anxiety. Um, after I graduated high school, I moved to California for a little bit. And um, after I left California and came back to San Antonio, um, I got addicted to crack. Uh, and that was super, super overwhelming. Um, but after letting that addiction go, I had started to try Xanax. And uh, I was like, you know what, maybe I should try a downer. Um, and then once I tried snorting heroin, that's whenever I felt like, okay, this is really what I've been looking for. Because it still gave me the confidence, but at the same time, it wasn't like I was overly amped all the time it was more of a manageable high for me so what made what took you to california where in california yeah and why'd you come back were you yeah, doing so drugs in california to... i have a lot of <laughs> we skipped over <laughs> yeah so i went to california because um i wanted to be a model and i wanted to get into acting and i did a little bit of both um, I did uh, a lot of, uh, what is it called independent films. And I did a lot of work like at California Institute of the Arts and did a lot of friends, um, student films and things like that. Um, I didn't really drink much while I was there rarely because I was just so focused on my passion and I really wanted to succeed while I was out there. And I didn't do any drugs either. So there was about a year and a half while I was in California that I was sober like 99% of the time. Um, I lived in Valencia. I also lived uh, in Los Angeles and North Hollywood. So I kind of moved around a little bit. But yeah, um, what ended up bringing me home was that 
my family needed help. My dad needed help with taking care of my grandparents. And so I came home for a summer and, and then just kind of gave up on my dreams and just decided to stay in San Antonio. And I moved out of California and came back. This to episode San is sponsored by MJ's Progress Not Perfection Meeting Center Association. The name sounds familiar because it is where my podcast studio is held. We are in our meeting center where we do all these meetings for mental health and addiction. And since we can't get any of the local businesses to sponsor what we do here, I figure I'll sponsor the podcast. I can do this podcast anywhere. I can do this at home. I can do this in a closet somewhere. I can do this in a basement somewhere. It doesn't matter. All I need is somebody else to talk to about addiction and recovery, and I can do this podcast. What I can't do from anywhere is help people with their addiction and their mental health problems. You know, we've had a lot of amazing success stories that keep me so filled with gratitude that I do this. We're here all day long, running meetings all day long, because we want to help as many people as we can. And even when we help one that's the biggest victory in the world, and that's how I feel right now. So if you can help out what we do here, then that would be amazing. You know, we do have a Venmo, we have a Cash App, we have a PayPal, we have an address you can send a check to. And, you know, all the money that gets donated goes towards rent, goes towards keeping the lights on. If you are a local business, if you're a national business, whatever, and you want to be a part of what we're doing, you know, you can reach out to me. And we can talk about how you can be a sponsor. Yeah, and, and that's when you decided you wanted to escape again. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, was it is it boredom or was it, like, I need to escape and I'm overwhelmed? It was a combination of both. Um, I was frustrated with myself and angry that I gave up on my dreams. Um, I think I was tw- I was 21 years old. Um, I was living with my parents again, so I wasn't happy about that. Um, I had to go back to working in the restaurant industry, which at the time I felt like I was a failure. Um, and so after work and stuff, I just really wanted to escape because I was beating myself up over the head with guilt and shame. And so I would just hang out with the people after work and just get high and drunk all the time. So was it correct? Because that was you started like seeing somebody and they're like oh i have some crack because that's a random one to jump to from <laughs> coke to drinking a little bit to like i'm gonna get into the crack for a minute and then find myself into some opiates and some benzos and i feel like the only time that happens is when you're dating somebody that influences it yes or yeah was there okay <laughs> you're correct absolutely correct so okay i i got just random <laughs> i had always been this type of person that was so easily influenced by other people that were around me that i would just enmesh myself with them so if this is what they were doing this is what i was going to start to do because i was just so desperate to be accepted and to be a part of their crowd that i'd be willing to do anything um, so my boyfriend at the time, he uh, found another d- drug dealer, sold Coke. Um, and, you know, I don't remember the, the details because there's, there's just, a there's a lot of damage that I've done to my body and my, my brain over the past 25 years. Cause I was in addiction for 25 years straight. Cause Xanax um, doesn't help. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't help. So my brain is still healing, but how old um, are you? I'm 41. Opiates keep us young. You look amazing. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> Opiates keep us young looking. It's crazy. 
yeah, but he was selling Coke. And then um, every once in a while, I would see his friends smoking crack. And I just got really, really curious because I, I was like, they just look so relaxed. And I didn't Which is like- so funny because like you call somebody a crackhead when they're acting crazy. Yeah. You know what I mean? When someone's like skitzing out all crazy, you're like, calm down, crackhead. And you're like, oh, my God, those crackheads look so relaxed. I want what they have. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what I was thinking, I swear. Um, But that's how crack affected me. Like, I I remember my telling my boyfriend, like, please teach me how to how to make crack. And he was just like, no, like, I'm not going to teach you how to do that. So I manipulated his friend into teaching me how to do it when he wasn't around. And then I got addicted to it. Um, And eventually I just started cooking all the Coke so that uh, I could make crack. And, oh my gosh, it it just got really out of control really quickly. I mean, I thought that being addicted to cocaine, like powdered cocaine by itself was intense. But being addicted to crack, it's like every five minutes I wanted to take a hit. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, the insanity of what we do. Because, I mean, you know, once you get addicted to any drug, really, like any drug, that's all you really want to do every five minutes, you know, most of the time. Like, you know, I was addicted to snorting anything, Mm -hmm. you know, line me up anything, you know, so I get that. So then what made you decide, okay, this is too much. This is too intense. This is going way too fast, too soon. Like what made you stop all of a sudden the crack to then move into something else? Um, Honestly, I just got bored with the way my life was going. And I got really tired of my boyfriend at the time. Uh, I was super selfish and self-centered. And I really, once I went through these phases, JD, of like dating people for like seven years. And then when I got to that seven year, I just got really bored and I just dropped you like I didn't know you. And so I was just ready for another relationship. I was ready for a new adventure in life. So I got a new boyfriend again. Um, I got a new job. And the next person that I dated was in Susanix. Okay. And pain pills. And alcohol. So, yeah, that was the thing was, okay, instead of people, is people, places, and things. Yeah. So now you have a new boyfriend, but this new boyfriend doesn't like crack, but this new boyfriend likes benzos and downers. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, I'll try that because I always do uppers. So let's see how this works. Yeah. And then it was exactly what you've been looking for. Yeah, I, I feel like every new drug that I tried was always what I was looking for. Um, but it never really was. But every new drug that I tried was was like the new shiny toy for me. And I was just ready to play. Mm. And um, with a new boyfriend became uh, came like a new cast of friends and a new job and um, partying after work and all these things that came with it. But, yeah, at first it was just uh, I started to drink uh, a lot of beer. Um, and then started to go to bars, like, right after work. I, I would take, like, my little mini skirt and all this stuff to work. And 
as soon as we clocked out at like 9 p.m., I went into the ladies' bathroom, put on my little tiny dress, and like sped like to to the bars, and uh, would drink and and start doing Xanax. And my boyfriend was like, "Oh my gosh, you get so much Xanax! I would get 120 bars a month." And uh, and I had gotten that prescription for years, and I never knew that if you drank with it, that it could make you feel the way that it made me feel. And I was like, bingo, I, I, I've scored, and I had no idea. And then, um, so I started doing that all the time, but eventually just the drinking and the pills got bore, boring for me, um, like everything tended to get boring. And um, after we would leave the bars, I uh would start hanging out with people and some people would be doing coke and other drugs and stuff and then eventually i was offered um some heroin powdered heroin and i tried that so um yeah because you black out almost right away as soon as you mm -hmm. mix benzos and alcohol you're blacking out so mm -hmm. it tends to get boring really fast because you don't remember shit exactly. <laughs> even if you had a good time you don't remember it so it's gonna right. feel boring and it's going to feel like, you know, it hurts. Um, and the thing is, my question is about the boyfriend. Now, you said you were hanging out with other people that introduced you to, you know, powder heroin. Um, mm -hmm. But he was just more into drinking and, you know, Xanax and pain pills. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so how did he feel about you getting into heroin or did you not tell him? Well, actually, he was the one that tried it first. Okay. Um, he was just into drinking and pain pills and Xanax and stuff. And then he started to make some newer friends that were into powder heroin. And so he tried it. And me being the codependent that I used to be was like, well, I don't want you to do it without me. Let me do it with you. I don't want you to go through that experience by yourself, which was just insane but yeah that's the way that i used to act yeah well you know that was a really popular way to act back when we were in addiction <laughs> you were getting yeah. 100 you were getting 120 bars a month and didn't realize that it was like drugs drugs no i had no idea that's yeah. funny that's kind of funny that all of a sudden yeah, yeah. you're just like you found the mixture of like oh this is what happens when i mix this yeah. with alcohol um yeah i I had started getting that prescription when I was like 18 years old prescribed uh, for anxiety and I would take it every so often, but I was taking it as prescribed and I wasn't taking the whole bar by itself. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. Which is funny that, you know, you needed it at 18, but it's probably just because you were doing a lot of Coke and you seemed like you needed to calm the fuck down. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> um, so, now, how long did this last with this boyfriend? Because you said the seven years was like your thing. Did this yeah, one? Seven years, JD. <laughs> clockwork, seven years. You'd be like, all right. Yeah, seven years. Absolutely. How old are you? How old are you at the end of this seven years? Oh gosh, I'm not sure. Uh, thirty, thirty-two. Okay, that's what I was thinking in my head. That's that's what I had in my head was thirty-two. Now. I think so. Does that also mean that you then found another new boyfriend? They take you up to 39 into the end of active addiction. And then you've been exactly. single and sober for the last two years. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now we're starting to see a pattern, right? Yep. There it is. <laughs> so boyfriend yes. number three at 32. Mm -hmm. What is he? Yeah. Does he introduce you to something or does he just like, oh, wait, does he introduce you to shooting? 
No, actually, it was the previous boyfriend that um, started to shoot heroin behind my back. And when I found out about it, I got real jealous. And uh, and I was like, how dare you do this without me? And then I started to shoot up and uh, yeah, the rest is history. Um, I got really addicted. Just, just when I thought like being a crackhead was super addictive, putting a needle in my arm. No, that's a different animal. It was it was terrifying how um, driven I was. And I, I was just so obsessed and just like pulled by the needle. It was insane. It's crazy how resentments work. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like your resentment wasn't, oh my God, I can't believe you're getting high like that and shooting yeah. up. Your resentment was, I can't believe you're shooting up and you're not letting me shoot up with you. Right. I want to shoot up and do it with you and do it the same high you're getting. It's not fair that yeah. I'm not getting the high you're getting. So yes. it's so funny. Like that's, are you a 12 stepper? Yes. Okay, good. Because, you know, I've <laughs> talked to people and not everybody is done the steps. You know, oh, yeah. I'm sure, you know, you have your own show, which, you know, people, what's your show called for people watching or listening? The Sobriety Playbook. Is, there, is yeah, it the now? Sobriety it, I know it's on YouTube. Is it on audio platforms as well? It is also on Spotify. Okay, cool. So when you're talking to people at all, I know you talk to people, like I have found that everyone obviously does a recovery differently. Even myself, mm -hmm. I do, my recovery looks different from anybody else's and it's supposed to. Yeah. Our addictions look so different, but the steps are extremely important. <laughs> the steps right. helped me out a lot especially yeah. with resentments. And mm -hmm. when I got to that list of everything that I resented about myself, you mm -hmm. know, I was blown away that like, I think three fourths of my list was resentments against me. Right. You, you know, and I had a sponsee right. where it was like barely any against himself. I'm like, you're doing this wrong. You gotta, yeah, <laughs> you gotta go back and do it again. Right. Right. Yeah, and sometimes, like, for me, what I realize is when I'm taking a sponsee through the steps and their uh, resentments against themselves is, like, a short list. Well, they're being as honest as they can be in this moment, but the good thing about doing a thorough uh, fourth and fifth step is that it doesn't have to be perfect. Like, they always say that we're always going to get another chance to look at stuff. Yeah. Yeah, hit it again on your next go through. I mean, you're yes. not you're not done doing a four and five. I do them daily. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Whenever I catch a resentment, I'm trying to figure it out on the fly and call somebody <laughs> on it. You know. Right. Um, so now, did this new boyfriend introduce you to anything, or was he already in the life? Or yeah, he really didn't introduce me to anything. Um, you know, he uh, he drank and did drugs uh, on the weekends. He was that type of person. Um, but he was like one of those type of people that didn't have to drink and wasn't addicted to drugs. Like he could just do it whenever he wanted to and could set it down whenever he wanted to set it down. Um, I wasn't that person. And uh, really quickly, you know, all the partying at night and having people over to our apartment and all that stuff. Um, I started to go step over his boundaries and he started to get really, really concerned and worried about me. Um, and I got really resentful at him because he was trying to stop me from destroying myself. And I just wanted to, to do whatever I wanted to do without having anybody tell me how I should live my life.
Well, you said at one point that people didn't know that you were an addict. Mm-hmm. Is that still ringing true in your thir- into your 30s that like people in your life didn't know that you had a problem unless they like were really close to you? Yeah. Like yeah. family and friends and shit, they didn't know that you know like right. oh yeah, Michelle likes, you know, you know, shoot up here and there. Yeah, most people, I mean my parents knew. Um my brothers knew, but nobody knew the extent of how insane my addiction got until I spoke up when I started to try to get help um, because I became such a manipulative person. I was such a liar, and I, uh, for the most part, kept up my, my physical appearances pretty well. Um, and and I dressed nice and wore nice makeup. And so I had this mask that I was always wearing. And unless you were super close to me, you didn't know I was an addict. And the trick was not to let anybody get close to me. No, every seven years. Um, <laughs> when, when, <laughs> when did you, like, you just said like, oh, they didn't notice until like I started saying I wanted to get help. When mm-hmm. was it to where you were like, I need to change shit. Probably when I was about 38 is when I started this, this process of going in and out of rehabs, going in and out of detoxes, going in and out of psych wards, all that. Um, so you're dual diagnosed then? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I was. Um, but but at this point, like, I mean, I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety and all these things, but um, I've just realized that if I could reprogram my subconscious mind and ask my higher power to direct my thinking and, and not try to control things on my own, um, and I'm being of service to other people and, and work in this program, like, I don't experience depression or anxiety. The only time I'll experience those things is if I'm in self-will. Yeah, which makes sense. Um, how often? Well, okay, well, we'll get there. So okay. now you're finally going to detoxes, you're going to rehabs, but it sounds like you're getting out of detoxes and rehabs and it's not sticking. Yeah, it's not sticking because the problem was that I was trying to get sober for other people. Um, like in my heart, I knew that I needed to get sober, but I, I could see how it was affecting my family and my boyfriend and the people around me. And so at that point, every time that I would go in and out, it was because I wasn't truly ready yet. Yeah, you needed to be so. Yeah, you needed not wanted Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, because there's a huge, obviously, when you need it, it's for your boyfriend or your parents or whatever. When you want it, look at you now. So Mm -hmm. what, what was it that you changed that scope? Was it one of the times that you needed it where it clicked and you heard something or was it one of the times you're like, fuck it, I just want this? Well, I would say, um, it was the last time that I went to rehab when I was 39 years old and, uh, I woke up three days after being driven from San Antonio to Austin to go to this rehab and I had been blacked out for like three or four days and I woke up. And the technician there at the rehab was like, do you know where you are? I had no idea where I was. So I was like, I'm, I think I'm in the state of Texas. Um, the issue at that point was that um, Xanax didn't work. Uh, 
Um, the heroin couldn't get me high anymore. Um, the alcohol wasn't working either. It, That's the it first would... to stop working. Huh? <laughs> That's the first to stop working for me was the alcohol. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was just, uh, I was absolutely terrified, JD, because until that point, like, I could escape for a little while, at least, for a couple of minutes or a couple hours, but when it got to the point where the alcohol and the drugs didn't work, I was like, well, what am I going to do? You know, I, I felt like I was in a place where I needed to really make a decision. Am I going to stay sober? Am I going to make that decision to get sober? Am I am I going to keep trying um, to use drugs and hopefully they'll get me high? But the thing is, like, I was so scared. Um, I had tried to commit suicide like so many times by overdosing and stuff, uh, but I would always wake up, you know, either on my parents' bathroom floor or in a psych ward or in a rehab and not knowing how I got there. And so I was really angry at God because I was like, why the hell am I still here? I keep trying to die. You won't let me die. What is going on? And so I felt like I got the message like, okay, you're here for a reason. You don't know what that reason is yet, but you're not going to die. It's not time for you to die. These drugs aren't working. So it's time to get sober. And I made a decision that, you know what, I'm not going to take this addiction into my 40s. And I didn't. And so I came into a 12-step program, uh, realized how selfish and self-centered I was, became willing to do the steps. And I learned to be honest and open-minded and be a service to other people. So how, how like, because I felt that way about my 30s. And mm -hmm. I got in a rehab at 31. Um, yeah. How early before 40? Because you said 39. When's your birthday? December 1st. Okay, so you were like three and a half months away from. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you were collecting a 98 chip around your 40th. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's yeah. good. <laughs> Still, you get yeah. it when you get it, you know. Yes. There, you know, there's no wrong way to get it when you're 40 or 30 or 50. You know, there's a guy that's been yeah. on my show a couple times and he was 50 and he uh -huh. was in addiction for 45 years, you know, and he, his addictions are and he was five, you know, yeah. but he has a year sober and you know he is doing amazing for what he can do so yeah. it doesn't matter how long and then plus like so now how did you get into let's get into your show what made you want mm -hmm. to start your show like i know why i started mine what made you get into yours yeah i just really felt like you know i always had this major fear of speaking and but i always felt like I started to experience so much growth um, because of the 12-step program. I was in a home group that required me, and they would call on people when it was time to share. So I would share three minutes a day, and I felt that every time that I shared, I would have all of these realizations. So at first, the reason why I created my channel on YouTube was because I needed to express myself um, and I felt that I got a lot of clarity when I would express myself. And then eventually it, it became a point where um, I wanted to share the things that I had learned in my journey um, because I know that I wasn't the only one that was on this path and 
other people benefit from hearing my stories. So, yeah. yeah. And it's funny. I, I was, I, I think the sharing early on, especially is really important when you're going to meetings. Right. Um, I found, I used to do like stand up comedy before I got sober and in addiction, I was doing stand up. So I was used to talking to people yeah. and, you know, being vulnerable and opening up in front of people. But now I got sober. I'm like, how do I do this, you know, sober, you know? So right. I made it a point and I was going to a lot of meetings that were like stand at a podium and share, you know, you're not sharing, yes. sitting down, you got to walk up to the front <laughs> and you got to stand there and right. share. So it forced me to start doing that. So I kind of like, I talked to my sponsor. He's like, you can share every day. It's okay. He's like, you're not, you know, take it. So like, there was some times where I swear, like, and I, I think I even do this now where I'll start talking. I'm like, man, I hope I find a point halfway through this, but I just need to say something, <laughs> you know, yeah. just to like, feel like you're getting something off your chest, you know? And right. that's why the meetings are so important for me. And if I don't have people here for a meeting, doing this podcast is important for me because it's yeah. basically, are you an AA or an NA person? AA, but I do go to NA sometimes <clears throat> as well. So then, you know, a meeting is only two alcoholics having a conversation. Right, right. You know, this is a meeting for me. If no one's here in the morning, this is a meeting for me where <laughs> it's two of us having a conversation. So, yeah. and I think it's so important. How long ago did you um, start your show? Um, I think it's been about a year, but I didn't really make a decision to really start creating content until a couple of months ago. Um, I had a lot of limiting beliefs. I allowed fear to really step in and control uh, the fact that I, I wasn't making any content. Um, I started to question myself and really, yeah, fear, fear kept me from creating yeah, it's funny how that works. It's almost like because fear can keep us in addiction. Mm -hmm. You know, fear can put us into addiction. Fear will keep us in addiction. I was just thinking about this the other day about fear and desperation. Yeah. How you're desperate to get sober, but you're also desperate to not live that life, you know, because you're so afraid of living a life that is um, going to not be chaotic. You know, it's right. we get used to the chaos of mm -hmm. what addiction is and active addiction is. And I see a lot of people, they get sober and they relapse because it's too calm. You know, they're they they are used to the con the controlled chaos. They understood the chaos. It made sense to them. And mm -hmm. usually they grew up in a house that was wild and crazy, and they were used to that anyway. It was always parents were alcoholics, too. They were used yeah. to screaming going on. They were used to fighting. So the chaos was something that they were just used to. Um, so the sharing's important, especially – now, do you do interviews with other people? Or is, it all, is it you or are they solo? So, so far, I've only done one collaboration, um, and then you're the second third second interview that i've ever done yeah yeah but this I've episode really... is sponsored by mj's progress not perfection meeting center association the name sounds familiar because it is where my podcast studio is held we are in our meeting center where we do all these meetings for mental health and addiction and since we can't get any of the local businesses to sponsor what we do here, I figure I'll sponsor the podcast. 
I can do this podcast anywhere. I can do this at home. I can do this in a closet somewhere. I can do this in a basement somewhere. It doesn't matter. All I need is somebody else to talk to about addiction and recovery, and I can do this podcast. What I can't do from anywhere is help people with their addiction and their mental health problems. You know, we've had a lot of amazing success stories that keep me so filled with gratitude that I do this. We're here all day long running meetings all day long because we want to help as many people as we can. And even when we help one, that's the biggest victory in the world. And that's how I feel right now. So if you can help out what we do here, then that would be amazing. You know, we do have a Venmo, we have a Cash App, we have a PayPal, we have an address you can send a check to. And, you know, all the money that gets donated goes towards rent, goes towards keeping the lights on. If you are a local business, if you're a national business, whatever, and you want to be a part of what we're doing, you know, you can reach out to me and we can talk about how you can be a sponsor. I'd really like to continue to do that, Um, bringing in different energy and other people's perspective. I mean, I think that that's so awesome what you're doing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I I like doing panels too, and I can have you on for a panel now. I don't like putting somebody on a panel interview unless Uh I've already had you tell your story. Okay. You know, I want people on the panels that have already had their story out there for like my listeners to be uh-huh. like, oh, yeah, I saw Michelle's episode. I, I know what she's talking about because I've heard her story before or something like right. that. So I, I'm going to try to do panels more often, too, whenever it's I did one so far with three other people and it's hard to schedule something <laughs> for four of us, like all at the same time to sit down for an hour. And yes. the first time we discussed stigmas, you know, around. Mm-hmm. You know, people in because I could talk all day about stigma. Like I feel the stigmas have gone from what I felt like in addiction into Mm -hmm. in recovery. All the stigmas that are in recovery from people in recovery. Right. Like recovery is not easy. Stop making this harder for us. (laughs) You know, like there's people that judge everyone's recovery. I'm not sure if you ever have to feel that way. But the ones that are judging everyone's recovery, it's like, are you trying to get them to back into using? Just be happy that they're not doing their drug of choice. Right. Like, how are you with harm reduction? Do you know Do you know about it? How am I with harm reduction? Um, Some people aren't believers in it. Re- what was that? Some people don't believe in harm reduction. Oh, well, I mean, that's how it all started off for me. Um like for me, for example, just to see if we're on the same page, like for me, it was just like, okay, well, I'm not going to stick a needle in my arm. I'm going to start snorting heroin. (laughs) You know, I'm not going to take pills anymore. I'm just going to drink. Well, I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm just going to smoke cigarettes. Well, I've decided not to smoke cigarettes anymore. I'm going to just start using nicotine gum and then lozenges. And then I'm going to cut out the caffeine. And so it's for me, um, my my addiction didn't just stop like immediately. Uh, there were steps and how, how it took place. Yeah. It, you definitely, cause like, I remember when I first got sober, I was going to quit smoking and do all this. And my sponsor was like, Whoa, you, <laughs> yes. you got to calm down. Yeah. He's yeah. Like, You're doing way too. He was like, pick something and it uh-huh. can't be drugs or alcohol, but pick something. Either it's your diet right. or smoke cigarettes I don't know what to tell you, but you got to pick something. I was like, well, I guess I'll smoke cigarettes still. So, (laughs) you know, here I am and I still smoke, you know, and it is what it is. Uh And I've tried to quit, um, but it's not an easy process. Yeah, it's not an easy process. And and looking back at it, 
whenever I first got sober and I wanted to stop everything all at once, that was a form of self-sabotage um, because I thought that I could stop everything at once. But if I tried, it was just way too heavy for me. And eventually I would go back and I had to learn you, from that. Yeah. Because if you fail with mm -hmm. something that's like, say, and it could be a dumb failure, like, oh, shit, I ate McDonald's today, and I yeah. broke my diet. You're like, well, fuck it. I might as well put a needle in my arm because I just broke my diet. Yes. <laughs> you yes. Know? That's, the ty that's the way that we think. Yeah, it, it is. It's, you know, and it's so sad. It's, you know, and I knew that just based on myself. And I, when I talk to other people like you, I'm like, let me guess, you had a boyfriend, and it and, and I know that because it's, we're not alone. These yeah. we think that we're so unique in our stories. Like, oh, no one ever experienced that or been through it. No, we all have. Mm -hmm. Like, we've all experienced it in one way or another, or seen it, or know right. somebody, or talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. And it's important to keep putting these stories out there. Yeah. Because the more that we're putting your story out there, there could be a girl somewhere in who knows where. They're like, oh my god, my relationships are seven years long too. <laughs> oh, my God, I mold myself in. And then that girl could be at 32 going, you know what? I'm not going to do this at 39. Yeah. I want to figure this shit out right now, yes. you know, and that's like kind of the point, you know, and I find that a lot of addicts, whenever they find out our ages, they feel like relieved. I remember when I met my newest sponsee, he was fresh out of rehab, you know, when he walked in my doors and he was just like, you know, how they look when they first walk in, even out of rehab, they're still beaten, especially at their mm -hmm. 15 year meth run. And he was like, so when did you get sober? I was like 31 and a half. And he's like, oh, that's how old I am. And it just, it gave him a lot of like, you know, a pep, like, oh shit, you were 31, I'm 31. And turns out we're like two weeks apart, like yeah. our birthdays in September, like two weeks. Uh -huh. So I was like, yeah, and you'll be 32 when I turn 32 collecting chips. So, like, I started reminding of all those little victories. I was like, dude, like, I did this when I was your age. You still have plenty of time. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that it's always good to be open about all of our past mm -hmm. and put it out there. I get why people don't want to put their past out there. Right. You know, how? Did, when did you start getting so open about, like, talking about your past like this? Like, fuck it, I'll put it on the internet. <laughs> like a year ago. That's one thing that I was going to say, JD, like that I really love about people in recovery that are really doing this is that they're living their life out loud and they have no shame or guilt attached to their past. Um, there's nothing that I will keep out of my story. Um, it's, I so, learned, <laughs> huh? it's so funny that I find yeah. that like normies you know people mm -hmm. that don't you know they drink or whatever yeah. they don't drink like we drank but you know they right. they know how to like party or whatever they don't do this kind of work mm -hmm. on themselves either yeah so you know i've talked to people they're like i don't know how you open up the way you open up i don't know how you talk about the things that you talk about mm -hmm. you know i could never say some of those things it's like well, you feel these things too. Like you're human. We all yeah. feel these things. We all like, so you're just like not outwardly expressing these things and just holding them in. Yeah. Like that yeah. sucks. Like I'm so glad that yes. I'm fortunate enough that I was, you know, in addiction for a while that it led me to things like therapy and 12 steps and working on myself and mental health. 
to right. understand all this because like you said depression isn't going away yeah like anxieties don't like they they are still there it's just they're more manageable now mm-hmm. we thought yeah. we were managing them with drugs and alcohol but <laughs> yeah we were, we were not doing well at it yeah. <laughs> like compared to now right yeah How- one thing that i wanted to say was that <laughs> I, because of this 12-step program, I just realized how dangerous it is for me not to speak about my past. It's so dangerous for me to keep things bottled up and not share about my struggles and how I got through things. Because like you said, um, the people that are not in 12-step programs, they don't have these steps to help them out of a hole or a dark place. We have steps in place that are there to help pull us out from the gates of hell, basically. Yeah. Um, and, and if we have the honesty and the open-mindedness and willingness and humility and the courage to talk about what we've been through and talk about how we got through it and where we're at now, there's a lot of strength in that. And not only does it help me, but it helps other people who are listening to me because I don't know about you, but growing up as a kid, I was taught to put on like a front, a face, like everything is absolutely okay. Don't talk about your problems. Just keep it all to yourself. Keep it locked behind closed doors. And that's what drove me into addiction because I felt like I couldn't be myself. Um, and, and if I expressed myself, I was looked down upon and punished. Yeah, no, and, and I, and that's almost kind of like what I was saying earlier too about feeling not heard, mm-hmm. you know, and feeling like I couldn't express and talk about things that I wanted to talk about. And I think, and you said about being an empath, I think that a lot of us empaths are addicts because, and it's almost like when you mentioned fear, one of the mm-hmm. things that fear is driven by is not understanding something. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that empaths are driven by is not understanding why somebody else isn't upset. Yeah. You know, how can you not be as upset as I am right now about this situation? Right. If you know the facts, how are you okay with everything that's happening when you know mm-hmm. the facts? Cause I'm devastated when I know the facts, you right. know, and that, and that would cause you to drink or use because you're so upset, not only about whatever is making you upset, but you're upset even about the people that don't care about what's making it, making you upset. Right. right. You know, <laughs> it's like the extra yeah. on top of that. So. Yeah, of course. And, it, and the thing that I, I always got upset about is, uh, like you said, like, how can this person not feel the same way that I do? But what I realize now that I've been sober is most people aren't wired like us. Like a lot of people, um, when I talk about empathy or how I feel around other people, um, energy and all this stuff, they just have no clue what I'm referring to. Um, so it's just very interesting to to witness that uh, and come to a place of acceptance that, okay, we're not all the same, but there are so many solutions as to how we can stay sober and still be empathic, but not take on everyone else's energy. Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing we have to learn is not taking on that energy too. It's easy mm-hmm. for us to take it on as empaths and 
it's almost as if we want to take it on sometimes to like yeah. you know like all right i can fix this i can turn this around and right. you, especially in sobriety you almost want to change that scope for people yes and i always say that anybody can do the 12 steps even if they're right. not you know an alcoholic you know for people that are watching or listening that aren't are just you know watching the support and they're not really alcoholics or anything mm-hmm. oh alcohol is only what mentioned one time in the steps yeah. and it's in the first couple words right and you can take that word out and put in whatever is making your life unmanageable and do the steps from there absolutely everyone That's- yeah whether you think you're addicted to something or not everyone always thinks oh the first step is admitting it bullshit mm-hmm. The first step is finding what makes your life unmanageable and how to fix it. Yeah. That's what the first step is about, is that unmanageability part. Yeah. I've had some really close friends of mine that are not alcoholic or addict, but they've had some other things that have made their life really unmanageable. And they have done the 12 steps and it has changed their life so much. Um, The 12 steps, I really feel like you said, anybody can work them. And if, somebody does it uh with an open heart and with honesty that they can get past whatever it is that's causing so much powerlessness oh yeah i have somebody she's like 23 years old and i i can't imagine being 23 in that forth thinking but she comes to our meetings mm-hmm. and she wanted to learn the steps so yeah. i went over the steps with her you know she yes. wanted her and her boyfriend come to meetings it's like i can't imagine being in a couple being this you know open yeah. with your partner like you guys are killing it and they're always like worried i'm like no you guys are killing it trust me at 23 and you're working on your mental health like this you're killing it right. um but yeah not everybody you don't need to be an alcoholic or an act to do the steps you know and that's the nice thing is you can get free of a lot of your thinking that tears us down and causes anxiety and depression mm-hmm. just by working the steps and just by yeah. doing them and being honest and working an honest program like you know, being honest when you when you don't have to be, right. but just because you feel like you have to be is important <laughs> because yeah. you don't you have to sleep with your own head at night. Mm-hmm. You're the one that knows how honest you were at the end of the day, yeah. even honest to yourself. And that shit will cause relapses. I don't have the mm-hmm. energy for that. I not yeah. in my 30s, not at 35. Nope. I'm just gonna be way too honest. If you don't like how honest I am, mm-hmm. there's the door because I don't. Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm at the exact same point, JD. I just uh I don't have the the energy to to try to arrange life to suit myself anymore. Um trying to expend energy in lies and manipulation that just drains the heck out of me. And so I just choose not to do that and be as honest as I possibly can. And that's the other thing too is I'm not going to let your resentments drive me anymore. Yeah. Before, like we'd mentioned about resentments earlier, uh-huh. but like resentments would drive me to like go out and get high or get drunk. And it wouldn't even be my own resentments. Yeah. It would be your projection of me, mm-hmm. your resentment of me that's making me upset. I have no control over your resentments. I'm not going to try to control yeah. them. Yeah. I used to feel like uh, <clears throat> other people's resentments would make me feel a certain way, but in reality, I would make my felt self feel a certain way. And what I realized is I'm not responsible for the story that that person made up in their head about me, that that's their issue. Um, I don't need to save them. I don't need to convince them that they're right or 
wrong or whatever, just to let go of control, let that person be wherever they're at in their journey. And uh, yeah, just really focus on changing myself instead of other people. Yeah, and you nailed it. That's exactly the point is people are going to think what they're going to think. They're going to mm-hmm. say what they're going to say. And I don't care to be the bad guy in your narrative. I can be the bad guy in your narrative. I can live with that because I'm the good guy in plenty of other narratives. Yeah. You know, that's the way I look at that now. Like I, I'll make amends where I needed to make amends. I still have some that I need to make, but they're on my list and I'm willing to make them. Just haven't yeah. found the right moment yet to make some of them. Um, but and some of them will hurt myself or others, but still, you know, yeah. the amends I'm willing to do, but yeah, I'm not going to hold on to your resentments. Uh, it, yeah. I don't have the time or energy anymore to do that. Um, mm-hmm. thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and chat with me You're and welcome. definitely we'll asking you to come back on to, you know, have you on a panel. And if you are looking for somebody to collab with for your show, you let me know. And we'll All figure right. out something. I'll always be down. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me. And um, I really appreciate all you're doing. No problem. Your link will be in the description. Um, so if somebody wants to listen to it or watch it, just go into the description of what we're watching right now or listening to. It'll be in there. It'll be, you know, marked Spotify link, YouTube link. You would go to her page, subscribe, like, whatever you do on there and, you know, check it out. Yeah. So thank thank you, you Michelle. Have a good day. All right. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.